and I'm here with Meredith. Hello. And this is the next episode of Nefarious New York. I'm just, again, going to jump right in, and Meredith is going in blind. Which is how I like it. This is the case of the Scripps family. Okay, Anne Scripps was born November 18, 1946, one of three children. She grew up a child of privilege, the descendant of men who founded what would one day become the Scripps-Howard newspaper chain. They did the Detroit News, the Cincinnati Post, and just other newspapers, so they had millions. She attended All Girls Sacred Heart Convent near Albany, and after graduation returned to Manhattan, where she studied at a two-year Catholic women's college. She graduated in 1966. The director described Anne as very attractive, pleasant, very active on the social service committee, and always willing to help others. After graduation, Anne entered the debutante arena, coming out of cotillions in New York and Europe. She lived in Bronxville, New York, mm. which is a wealthy suburb outside of New York City. In 1969, when Anne was 23 years old, she married Anthony Morell, who was a rye stockbroker. The wedding was held at the St. Regis Hotel. And this is totally irrelevant fact, but in The Godfather, when Michael and Kay Corleone visited New York City, they stayed at the St. Regis Hotel. Mm, okay. Okay, so Anne, so she's married now. She wants just a quiet suburban life like a June Cleaver type of life. She wants to be waiting in the doorway as her husband Tony gets home and, you know, with a drink in hand. That's what I want to do. <laughs> Shortly after they moved to Bronxville, Anne became pregnant, and eventually they had daughters Alexandra and Anne, who I'm going to call Anne Jr. So Anne wanted a close relationship with the girls. Every day, Anne would walk her daughters to school, return to pick them up for lunch, and take them back after. At the end of the day, she would walk them home from school. Unfortunately, after 18 years of marriage, Tony and Anne divorced. Anne didn't want to raise her daughters alone, so at a party in 1988, which is the same year she got divorced, mm -hmm. Anne met Scott Douglas. Now, he was an out-of-work and self-employed house painter, she hired him to paint her house, which led the two to start a relationship, and eventually they got married that October. The ceremony was small and took place in the living room of Anne's Bronxville home. Anne's mother, brother, and sister did not attend the ceremony. They weren't invited because Anne knew they wouldn't approve. No one knew what Anne saw in Scott. Even those who did attend the wedding weren't happy about it. He was described as classless, a name dropper, and shifty. You know what's weird? The first thing I thought of was, wasn't she a debutante? And yeah. so marrying. Right. Yeah. So it that's exactly what I thought. Like I would think she wouldn't go for a person like that, but okay. Scott and Anne moved in together and started to build a life. He doted on her in public and she joyfully introduced him around to her friends, and they began planning to have a child. Scott Stewart Douglas grew up in Rye, New York, the son of a single mother. His father died and his mother was left to raise the kids. When his mother remarried, Scott fought with his stepfather. He also occasionally used illegal drugs and he fathered two children out of wedlock, which is a secret he kept from Anne. Mm. 
Scott was handsome and tall, but he did have an unusual hobby, taxidermy. Oh, God. Um, He was extremely private and could keep a secret. People who saw him on a regular basis knew very little about his private life. Anne's friends did not like him, and he definitely tried to build a wall between Anne and her circle of friends. The Scripps family fortune, like so many other old money estates, was well protected in trusts. So Anne might have been sheltered, but she, was, she wasn't naive and she wasn't stupid. She kept Scott on a tight budget, and he had to continue to work at his painting business. Anne refused to buy him a new BMW, and she expected him to carry his own weight. But that didn't happen. Anne's control of the money caused a lot of problems. Once in front of a group of friends, Scott screamed at Anne, I've gotten more from women I've dated two weeks than I've gotten from you in two years. Anne's money was her money, end of story. He wanted a joint checking account, but she refused. Scott was kept in the dark about finances as much as possible. Scott was also secretive, though. He kept two different checking accounts with different social security numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, not not for nothing, but as you're going through this, this guy has, like, every clear-cut sign of turning into a murderer. But go ahead. Yeah. So Scott never fit in with Anne's family, but the problems did go both ways. He told his friends that he felt that her family never thought he could do anything right. He didn't get along with her daughter, Alexandra, which was from her first marriage, Alexandra didn't think he was good enough for her mother, and she moved out of the house. This was really the first step in isolating Anne from her family and friends. He also became very suspicious when Anne was on the phone with anyone. And when they would try to take their daughter out for walks, Scott would get angry when Anne stopped to talk with neighbors. Anne told a few close friends that Scott was paranoid and demeaning, frequently calling her names and accusing her of having affairs. After the birth of their child, Victoria, nicknamed Tori, the fighting got worse. Now they had the stress of a newborn, plus all the secrets, suspicions, and jealousy, so it was not good. Scott told Anne a lot of lies, and she slowly discovered them. He told her he was Jewish and that his mother was dead. Neither was true. He was Episcopalian, and his mother was alive and well. So Anne hired a private investigator to find out the truth about Scott's past. We don't know what the investigators found, but it wasn't enough to make Anne leave him at this point. Scott was drinking more and getting rougher. He would throw furniture and smash glasses, and he pushed Anne into the wall a few times. Friends and relatives saw his violent behavior at a wedding when Anne was dancing with her former brother-in-law. Scott stormed onto the dance floor and pulled the couple apart, calling Anne a slut. At a dinner party, Scott slammed Anne's head into a stone driveway wall in view of all the other guests. Oh, my God. Friends said that Anne began talking in coded messages. Let's do lunch meant Scott was coming and she couldn't talk anymore on the phone and she needed to speak to the friend in person. When things were okie-dokie, the exact opposite was true, but Scott was within earshot and Anne couldn't be truthful on the phone. She thought Scott had tapped the phone lines because she found these weird wires in the basement. In the spring of 1991, Anne and Scott separated. Anne took Tori and moved in with her daughter, Alexandra. She amended her will to only give Scott a portion of her trust. Anne and Scott stayed married for another couple of years. 
The abuse escalated in late November and early December before Anne reached out for help. In November, Anne went to her family lawyers and a filing date was set for early 1994 to start the divorce proceedings. Scott probably knew this was coming and he hired a law firm of his own and wanted substantial alimony. Some say he wanted a quarter million dollars to leave the marriage, which Anne actually agreed to pay as long as it was done through a court-approved agreement. She was just afraid of extortion or him using Tory as a means to get more from her. Mm -hmm. In early December, Anne found out Scott had removed important personal papers like Tory's birth certificate and other records from the house. She sought a court order preventing him from harassing her and, more importantly, from taking Tory from the house. She didn't ask to have him removed from the home at this point, so they stayed together in the house. Wait, 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 stop. I thought she moved in with her daughter. So she did move in with her daughter, but then she went back home. Okay. And they were continuing to live together. Okay. Okay, where is this going? (laughs) Anne told family and friends that Scott would awaken her in the early morning hours to yell and belittle her. He would berate her for gaining weight. He accused her of infidelity and once told her that she had given him a sexually transmitted disease. Anne did seek help from a domestic assault shelter, which urged her to leave the situation. She was obviously well-positioned to leave, but Anne was reluctant because moving out could be interpreted in the divorce as abandonment and would weaken her position. Mm -hmm. Leaving, she thought, Scott would have enough evidence to gain custody of Tori. Scott and Anne were supposed to go to a Christmas Eve party in 1993, but instead Anne spent the night in a Bronxville emergency room after a blow from Scott scratched her cornea. She sent a note to her friend about missing the party. We planned on decking the halls. Wouldn't you know, I would get decked myself. Oh my God. I don't want to laugh, but... I know, it's kind of funny, but not. Her friend said Anne told her Scott pushed her down the stairs, had thrown her on the floor and kicked her. She said Anne put up her hands and said, take anything you want, but don't hurt me anymore. I can't take it anymore. Anne said he pulled her hair so hard she thought he was going to pull it right out of her head. Anne told this friend she was sleeping with a hammer under her bed for self-defense. This is kind of an important fact. Things got worse after Christmas and in the week between Christmas and New Year's Day. Anne returned to White Plains in an attempt to have Scott evicted from the home, but it was impossible to find a judge because of the holidays. Police were called to the home several times during December, but they couldn't do anything based on threats alone. In the days between the holidays, both Anne and Scott were reported by friends to be depressed. Scott was said to be having a mini breakdown. He said he wanted to jump off the Tappan Zee Bridge over the Hudson River. Anne Douglas's daughter, Anne Jr., called the police for a welfare check at 3.30 a.m. on January 1, 1994. She couldn't get in touch with her mother or Scott. She was worried since early New Year's Eve, her mother and Scott had another bitter fight. The police arrived and knocked down the door and found Anne unconscious in bed, her sheets soaked in blood, her terrier puppy next to her trying to comfort her. Across the hall, Tori, then three years old, had witnessed the crime. Tori was reported as saying, Daddy gave mommy boo-boos. Daddy gave mommy many boo-boos. Why is mommy wearing paint? Oh, my God. Yeah, it's terrible. 
So the police started searching for Scott. He had called his brother Todd to tell him something had happened at the house. He told Todd, I've done something really bad this time. In a few hours, Scott's 1982 BMW was found on the Tappan Zee Bridge with the bloody hammer inside, the same hammer that Anne was keeping under her bed for her own protection. The family and friends of Anne told authorities that Scott purchased camping equipment shortly before Christmas and that the car on the bridge was just to throw them off his trail. Authorities began operating on the assumption that Scott was still alive and hiding. For five days, they did search the Hudson River without success and began combing the areas around Bronxville looking for Scott. His family believed he had jumped. As Anne lay in the hospital, her first husband, Anthony Morell, who was in the terminal stages of cirrhosis of the liver and had been hospitalized near Philadelphia, left his hospital bed to be at her side. A week after the attack, on January 6, 1994, Anne was taken off life support and died without regaining consciousness. Aww. She was 47 years old. After her death, she gave her liver to her ex-husband, Anthony Morell, saving his life. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. So, meanwhile, Scott is still not found. Anne's family offered a $100,000 reward for anyone with information leading to the arrest and prosecution of Scott. It was unlikely, Westchester County District Attorney Piro said, for the body to have surfaced if he did jump off that bridge. The temperature of the water prevented the gas from expanding, so he wouldn't drift to the surface until it got warmer out. So nearly three months passed before there was any break in the case. Authorities were still working on the assumption that he was alive when a railroad employee found his body downstream from where his car was left, and they found him in spring, in April. Uh, the Scripps family was relieved. That's that murder... But the case, unfortunately, does not end there. Oh, God. So now remember that she had two daughters with her first husband. I, that's very funny because I said, where has Anne Jr. been? Because there's no really mention of her at all. So she had Alexandra, Anne Jr., and Tori, right? Yes. Correct. I am paying attention. Good girl. All right, so Anne Jr., was married and divorced, and she had a son. After her divorce, she began drinking and suffered from depression. She even had electroshock therapy. In 2009, the 38-year-old divorced mom with the 13-year-old son had lunch with her sister, Alexandra. By 6 p.m., Ann Jr. was home by herself. She went on Facebook and sent her friend a message, What's up, Hoka? Ha ha, miss you. Around 7.30 p.m. and... <laughs> I might take that I out. Love, I love... No, you did it in the last case, too, when you said, fuck y'all. Fuck all y'all. What's up, Hooker? Haha, miss you. What's up, Hooker? What's up, Hooker? Well, it's H-O-O-K-A, Hooker. I know. It's just... <laughs> Gotta leave that in. Oh, God. Come on, focus. Right. Around, all right. Around 7.30 p.m., Ann Jr. drove her BMW and called a friend from the car. The call then got dropped. She was in, like, bad service area. Uh, just after 7.45, Ann Jr. stopped her BMW, which actually was the same make and model as her stepfather, Scott's, 
and she drove it into the middle of the Tappan Zee Bridge. She walked to the railing and called her friend again, and all her friend heard was a loud swooshing sound. Anne had jumped in the water. So driving the same car at the same age from the same spot, Anne Jr. committed suicide just as Scott had. Oh my God. She left a note addressed to her son. And it read, My little Michael, my angel, I loved you more than life and will love you forever. I tried to give you everything and always be there. I am sorry I let you down. I'll be your guardian angel and that's a promise. Be strong, my special son. I love you. I loved you the day you were born. I'm sorry I let you down. Mommy and Daddy, please find me. Mommy and so did the... Her own parents. She wanted her mom and her father to find her. I was going to say, but her father was Anthony. I thought he was okay. He had the transplant. So he was dead at this point. Uh, Yeah. So that's not the end. Victoria Scripps. So Tori... After her mother's death, Tori was adopted by her aunt and uncle, so her mother, Anne's sister, and the husband, and they moved to Vermont. In 1997, when Tori was in junior high school, she saw the movie called Our Mother's Murder, which was a mostly fictionalized recreation of her mother's murder. This caused Tori great emotional stress, especially when classmates began taunting her about her mother's death and being adopted. Her adoptive parents reportedly believed it was one of the causes of her performing so badly in school and turning to drugs. When Tori turned 18 and was due to receive her first seven-figure inheritance, her adoptive parents went to court claiming that she was incapable of handling the sudden script's wealth. The court reportedly decided in Tori's favor, and she was said to have quickly ran through the money. In February of 2012, she pleaded guilty in U.S. District Court to running a crack house in Burlington, Vermont, which is near where she was raised. Um, They distributed cocaine and heroin. She was incarcerated for about a month, was permitted to go into rehab in Florida, but was thrown out of a halfway house for violations and returned to jail. A plea deal was made, and she went into drug treatment. She was arrested for a probation violation. At 24 years old, Tori was released from prison, After telling the judge she lost family, friends, pets, and hope for her future, Tori wrote a 10-page letter to the judge outlining her plan for her future. She said, Throughout my addiction, I have suffered so many consequences. Every time I think things cannot possibly get any worse, they do. In her letter, she also stated that she was going to move back in with her adoptive parents and join groups like Narcotics Anonymous, She also noted that her 2014 drug relapse that resulted in her probation violation happened between the anniversary of her sister's suicide and her biological parents' death. She said, In no way am I trying to use this fact as an excuse, nor do I want anybody to pity me because of this. I am telling you because it is something I feel contributed to my relapse. I fail to acknowledge that this particular time of year was still a problem for me and something I probably should have asked for some support through. I am so sick of disappointing people. I have so many regrets, and there are so many things I wish I did differently. So in August of 2018, Tori was arrested for stealing her adoptive mother's car and some jewelry. And the last thing that I could find was in October of 2018, she was married and pregnant. Her husband was arrested for assaulting two women, Mm. and he already had four previous felony convictions. Oh, God. I read something recently 
about children who are victims of physical uh, physical abuse, whether they are witnesses or mm-hmm. or victims themselves, that the effects are basically the same. And obviously, you know, at an early age, and she was three years old when her mother was killed, right. a child's brain is becoming hardwired for that, for later physical and emotional functioning. And so exposure to domestic violence threatens that development. Um, there's also PTSD that is becomes a factor as well. Um, there's short-term effects and there's long, long-term effects. And obviously mental effects as well as abusing drugs is just, it's not a surprise. I mean, if she did not get the help that she needed, this was almost bound to happen. The, the other thing, too, is um, in this article, they were saying that obviously, you know, you have the short term effects, but then you have the mm-hmm. long term effects. So you've got the um, victims of emotional, physical or sexual abuse. They're at the, a higher risk for health problems as adults. And some of the health problems are, believe it or not, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, poor self-esteem and, and a whole slew of other problems. It's a very big, you know, big predictor of later on in life. Right. And- that has to be probably one of the most traumatic events that's not done to you directly. Right. Right. That was the uh, Scripps family. That was, uh, an, that was an interesting one. Thanks. And a disturbing one. Yeah, that was it. Just leave. If everyone could leave reviews five stars that would be awesome check out our instagram and facebook page under nefarious new york nefarious new york